We know the West as the West looks at itself. We study the East the way the West looks studies the East. We do not even know if the world would look different if we looked at it our way. So it's high time we threw away our colonial lenses and we got our own Indic lenses which will help us to be more holistic and dharmic. Namaste to everyone. It is wonderful to be back in Sangam Talks after a gap of two years. My first talk was on India's educational heritage, which was based on my first book. I think that was in 2018. That talk got very good traction and I was inundated with emails that are continuing till this day. Many of them went on to purchase my book and gift it to others. I would like to thank all of them. And um, I often hear from students who watched my uh, first Sangam talk in their classroom. The teachers played it for them. And that makes me so happy that uh, history classes have become so uh, innovative that they're also looking at videos uh, from outside the classroom. Um, I would also like to congratulate Rahul Divan, the man behind uh, Sangam Talks and his entire team, as well as the donors who are supporting uh, Sangam Talks. Uh, which have become the dharmic version of TED Talks. So um, today I am going to revisit the uh, topic of India's educational heritage. My uh, new book on the subject has just got released. So I think it's a good time to talk about it. India has one of the oldest, the most ancient tradition of formal disciplined teaching and learning. The whole institutionalization of education that we have today, uh, you know, of going to school, then college, specializing in a subject of our choice, this system actually evolved in ancient India. Let us recognize that. It was so institutionalized that there were rites of passage to mark the different milestones of education. So we had Vidyarambha, um, Upanayana, Samavartana, long before the Western world got its graduation and convocation ceremonies. The Vidyarambha is a ceremony where a child writes to uh, learns to write for the first time. So typically, the child would trace the alphabets on a on a plate of rice. That's how it was done. It was also called Aksharabhyasa. So, uh, and in Bengal, there was a ceremony called Hate Khodi, and that's what you are seeing in the picture here. So, Hate Khodi is performed during Saraswati Puja, where the child learns to uh, write the alphabet for the first time. Usually, it is Om or Ka or some such thing. Um, and it is a very important day for Hindus when their children learn to write for the first time. Or we could say they learned to learn the alphabet for the first time. Writing came much later. Another beautiful ceremony is the Upanayana, in which a child is initiated into higher learning. So it's an elaborate ceremony and you can see a picture here. Uh, and it signifies that the child will enter the Brahmacharya phase of life, which will, which will be dedicated to um, uh, studying under an Acharya or a Guru. It's like a second birth of a person. That's why after the Upanayana, the, the person is called Dvija. It's like second born, born again. Um, and in Vedic times, both girls and boys went underwent the uh, uh, Upanayana ceremony. Those who went to, into higher learning, they, both uh, girls and boys, underwent the ceremony. 
the next rite of passage was the samavartana after the completion of education many years of education it could be uh, 12 years or more um, so after the completion of education under a guru it there was it was something like a graduation ceremony called samavartana that is not being done nowadays but it was a very meaningful ceremony many of you who read my first book want to know what is it, what is there in my second book is it just uh, uh, is it more expanded uh, or should you be reading the books in sequence so what i want to say is the simple answer is that if you want to read a very short book then go for the first one it is like a summary and um, if you want more details you want more data points on the knowledge revolution that was unleashed by india then by the second one also it has many many references more than 200 references there are uh, new chapters on brahmacharya educational games in ancient india education through storytelling and um, nuances of learning um, there is also a chapter on what can today's india learn from her ancient systems so um, i think the second book will give more details and more context i have um, uh, the second book is published by vitasta publishing which is a reputed uh, publishing company so um, here is a map that is there in my second book i have tried to locate the well known centers of learning on the on the map in my first book also there was a map in which i plotted some 20 centers of, of learning but um, in this book i have done a lot more research um, not all these centers existed at the same time um and i managed to find more than 80 centers which i've shown on this map um so in the northwest you can see takshashila which is the oldest to have been excavated it is perhaps older than uh, the 16th century bce though uh, mainstream historians put it down to 6th century bce it is definitely older than that um everyone knows nalanda university that's the most well known it is in the east but there are scores of others as you can see in this map uh, you know they, they kept coming close to each other and some of them like somapura and others they are in uh, bangladesh today's bangladesh archaeologists are still coming across the remains of ancient universities for example in 2009 the telhara university was uh, discovered some 40 kilometers away from nalanda and it is even older than nalanda it is also bigger than nalanda So as I mentioned in my first talk Nalanda had an absolutely grand campus with vast grounds 300 apartments ponds with lotuses blooming in them um, groves of amra then a three storied library which which were which had the, the the most important manuscripts so the experience of studying in Nalanda was absolutely unforgettable for students and we have records of that uh by the chinese students especially so the admission test to enter nalanda was very difficult and only 20% of the students managed to make it through those tests uh vikramshila was another university beautiful university and it was surrounded by a wall all around which was decorated with art and on the right of the main entrance there was said to be a portrait of nagarjuna the very well known scholar and on the left there was a portrait of the buddhist master atisa then in uh, central india there was ujjaini which was very well known for mathematics and astronomy the prime meridian or the zero degree longitude passed through ujjain it it is only in the colonial period that the uh, greenwich became the prime meridian 
then um, in gujarat there was vallabhi university which was famous for economics and public administration um, students who graduated from there were able to get good jobs in administration so it is interesting that we have i am i am ahmedabad today even today in um, gujarat so there seems to be some kind of a continuity there um, and in the south you can see a cluster of institutions Uh, like Kanchipuram, Ennairam, Shringeri, Talagunda, Thrissur, so many of them. Even in those times, the students and teachers traveled to the institutions of their choice. So even though it was not as easy as today to travel, the students would travel to the place where they want. They would get the guru of their choice, and um, which which was you know. So it was. Um, so there was a kind of a. pedigree associated with studying in certain universities um and the, so the people did not confine themselves to their hometown they went in search of the best place to get education that is how they, uh, there were professors like gunamati and stiramati in nalanda who had earlier established the vallabhi university so the professors were traveling as well bhaskaracharya who taught in ujjaini was perhaps from bijapur in karnataka it was a flourishing ecosystem of learning in india today we complain that the teachers are not being respected they are not being paid well or we praise finland because the teachers there get high salaries uh, and and you know they are very respected but why are we not taking inspiration from ancient india where the teachers were, were the most respected people in society the entire society supported scholars financially emotionally and physically during religious ceremonies donations were given to teachers and educational institutions so there was great merit associated with donating to teachers you will find many inscriptions where the donors are um, have uh, the are named and they you know about how much money they have given to this institution so it was a matter of pride for them kings were giving lands to gurus to build centers of education Nalanda for example was funded by the revenue of 100 villages it was one of the most well funded universities of the time so in this manner the seekers of knowledge were freed from the burden of a livelihood there was a practice of bhiksha bhiksha is sometimes called begging which is absolutely the wrong translation uh, bhiksha was a practice where the students or the teachers would knock at the at any door of a householder and ask for food and the lady of the house would gladly give whatever food she could give rice dal fruits anything sometimes she would even deprive herself of food in order to give food to students and teachers that was the culture of the times the spirit of rational inquiry was very well developed physical phenomena were observed carefully and um, rules of logic were applied to decode them the science of debate was highly developed actually everything was approached very scientifically references to um, tarka vidya can be found in many shastras kings were fond of organizing intellectual tournaments in which superior knowledge debating reasoning public speaking skills all these were rewarded if we look carefully India's imprint can be found on every discipline that is being pursued in universities today. So, you know, the thinkers of ancient India such as Kanada, Sushruta, Charaka, Aryabhata, 
वराह मिहिरा ब्रह्मगुप्त भास्कराचार्य पाणिनी पतंजलि पिंगळा भरता हंड्रेड्स ऑफ अदर्स दीज गुरुज लेट द फाउंडेशन ऑफ एव्हरीथिंग दॅट वी कॉल सायन्स ऑर आर्ट ऑर ह्युमॅनिटीज टुडे so i think it would not be an exaggeration to say that the edifice of modern knowledge stands on the work done by the indian scholars i now come to the topic of brahmacharya a very neglected topic today uh, which is the subject of my of a whole chapter in my new book the brahmacharya period was uh, like a 20 25 year period that constituted the student life of of a person so a brahmachari was required to lead a life of strict discipline and to exercise control on every aspect of life whether it was food sleep or even thoughts it was designed uh, to be a celibate life uh, in today's world it might seem a little hard to understand why celibacy was so important but essentially it was seen as a conservation of energy for a higher purpose so it was it was not that sex was considered sinful far from it uh, i mean we are uh, india is a land of kama sutra but the period of studenthood was considered most unsuitable for giving in to pleasures because this was a time when self control had to be cultivated and perfected and let me tell you they did have a lot of fun too the students though it was a strict uh, disciplined life there was also room for fun and enjoyment most of the students carried happy memories of their student life but it was a time to understand uh, to internalize some of the essential aspects of ashtanga yoga such as yama which is restraint niyama which is considered as positive duties towards oneself like shocha tapas uh, swadhyaya and so on yoga which consists which included pranayama you know the control of prana and proper breathing dhyana focused concentration dharana meditation so uh, all these things had to be learned in the brahmacharya period so imagine an education which gave the tools that are needed to cross this sea of life in today's education uh, system we have grossly neglected brahmacharya if you look at the problems troubling our society corruption voter fraud tax fraud domestic violence alcoholism substance abuse i think it can be linked to the absence of brahmacharya not to forget sexual violence which is linked to male attitudes towards females stress and depression which have become very common so the brahmacharya period helped to build character honesty respect for women resilience in the face of crisis patience and balance we should not have thrown it out in the name of modernity i would now like to highlight the importance of memory training in uh, ancient india it was a key aspect of learning and without it you could not be a good student there is no way you could have got into nalanda or any of the famous universities of the time if you didn't have a good memory so memory was a very important attribute today we tend to be very dismissive about memory and we associate it with rote learning uh, but i think um, we are doing wrong there there is actually a superior learning curve when memory is enhanced this was very well understood by our gurus it helps to join the dots 
Yi Jing has actually written, Yi Jing was uh, a, a Chinese student who studied in India and he has written about the extraordinary memory and intellectual capacity of the Brahmanas. There is also the famous doctoral research carried out by James Hadzel in recent times in which he found a marked cognitive improvement in the brains of those who uh, did Sanskrit chanting. So, you know, the Sanskrit effect as it is called. The, the oral tradition of the Vedas are, um, are, are that the, the mantras are chanted in 11 different ways. So, it was understood that human memory is not linear. Okay, so you had to learn in different ways in order to uh, remember something very well uh, throughout your life. So there were different ways of uh, chanting and learning. For example, they uh, for the Vedas, they, they have the Samhita Patha, the, the Pada Patha, the Krama Patha and so on. And which ultimately concludes in the Ghana Patha. That helped the students to develop formidable memories. It was not all uh, dry education in India. Storytelling was used very effectively. After all, India is a land of, uh, is a civilization that has understood the power of storytelling. So whether we look at the Upanishads or the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the Puranas, so much is conveyed via stories. So the stories could, were also uh, conveyed via songs, dances, dramas, puppet shows. All of them use stories as a means of education. So apart from the education that, that was that came from the text, there were these uh, audio-visual ways of teaching. The Panchatantra, Hitopadesha and the Jataka tales, they have traveled from India to Persia and then to Greece and from there to the whole world. These stories were absolutely, uh, they created a sensation. Uh, this is how Aesop's fables came about. Aesop was actually a, a slave in ancient Greece. Uh, we don't know where he came from, but he definitely brought these stories from India. The talking animals in Panchatantra were used to teach practical wisdom that imparted education in Niti Shastras or, or the ethical code of conduct. You will find more details of this in my book. Games were also used in education. For example, uh, the game of snakes and ladders were used to teach values to children. Uh, today it's of course just numbers uh, you know on the board with snakes and ladders but in ancient times it was called by names like Mokshapatha and uh, Gyan Chopar and basically it taught the children that you would advance spiritually in life only if you cultivated virtues and you would fall if you uh, if you developed vices and bad habits and bad qualities. So this was very well conveyed through this game. And if a player got into a square representing a virtue like Daya or Jnana, then she would go up the ladder to a higher number. And if she entered a square which was uh, labeled Krodha or Ahankara, then she would fall into a snake's mouth and um, go down to a lower number. So only after the British came, the moral aspect of the game began to be stripped away. And it just became the, you know, the, the game that it is today, just a game of numbers and winning. So the games of chess and playing cards also originated in India and they were also used in education. They taught strategy to the students. So in fact for um, princes, uh, chess was very important. They learned strategy, war strategies via chess, playing cards as well. Uh, let's now move on to the subject of how Indian knowledge was transferred from 
India to the rest of the world, it was like a revolution that started from India. So in this diagram, which is from my book, you can see how the knowledge of Ayurveda, astronomy, mathematics and other subjects went eastwards to China and Southeast Asia. And you can also see how knowledge went to Greece, Persia, West Asia, Japan, and then finally it went to Europe. Mind-boggling numbers of manuscripts were carried from India to China. This is something not taught in our history books. The Chinese students who came to study in India competed with each other to carry the maximum number of manuscripts back with them. So uh, the Sanskrit works uh, were then painstakingly translated into Chinese once they reached uh, China. Uh, for example, Zhuangzang, you know, the Chinese student who went to study in, Ch uh, in Nalanda, his biggest worry was how to carry back all the manuscripts that he had collected during his travels, how to carry them back without any damage. So, you know, he was devastated when he lost 50 manuscripts because of a storm that broke out when he was crossing the river Sindhu on the way to China. And in fact, he had to stop at many places on the way because he was waiting for someone to go and get uh, new manuscripts from India. And he wanted to wait in uh, in the someplace midway until those new manuscripts came to replace the ones that he had lost. Uh, it is not just the Buddhist texts that the Chinese were interested in. They also took books on science and math, which, which were in high demand. In fact, the Indian books on math and science, they were called Brahman books by the Chinese. It was not just that the Chinese students came to India, there were many Indians who went to China, many Indian scholars who were uh, incentivized to go to China um, and they would be invited to go there and translate the Sanskrit texts to help the scholars, the Chinese scholars in translation. That is how Kashmir supplied many scholars, but different states of India supplied scholars to China. And they would be received uh, with great fanfare by the Chinese emperor. There would be a delegation out going there with music to go and receive these Indian scholars. So th this is a picture showing Zhuangzang and his staff translating the Sanskrit texts. It was a dream come true for Zhuangzang when Emperor Taizong decided to support the translation project. After uh, Zhuangzang returned from China, uh, Emperor Taizong decided to support his translation project by giving him a staff consisting of stenographers, monks, grammar experts, copyists and so on. And that is how Zhuangzang spent the next 20 years after he went back to China translating. Uh, he translated more than 74 works out of the 657 texts that he carried from India. Just think about it. Now let's look at how Indian knowledge went to Greece. Pythagoras forms an important connection between India and Greece because uh, in those days the yogis were called gymnosophists by the Greeks. Uh, Lucius Apuleius in the 2nd century said that the preeminent race called gymnosophists had given Pythagoras the greater part of his knowledge. The fact that Pythagoras either travelled to India or he got exposed to Indian thought in Egypt or some other uh, country close to India has been noticed by many scholars like Apuleius, Eusebius, Apollonius, Philostratus and so on. And it is also evident that the Greek philosopher Democritus 
took up scientific concepts that were articulated by Rishi Kanada. There is a lot of similarity in what Kanada wrote and what Democritus wrote. Now, Hippocrates was a student of Democritus. Hippocrates who is considered the father of Western medicine. That is why William uh, Wilson Hunter, he said that the Brahmanas learned nothing from the Greeks but taught them much. He said that. So, the trade routes to which the products from India reached the rest of the world were also the routes through which knowledge and manuscripts, all these things were tra traveling. So, it was not just trade that was conducted on these routes, knowledge was also transferred along these routes. In Alexandria, there was a famous library which played a major role in transmitting texts from the east to the west. The port of Alexandria was one of the largest in the Mediterranean coast and it was an important hub for trade in products like spices, cotton and luxury goods. And you know that these things were uh, in great demand from India. Most of the, many of these products were from India. So it has been chronicled that the library administrators went to any extent, beg, borrow or steal to get the most original, most authoritative copies of the books. So they wanted that in their library. The ships which went to the Alexandria port would be thoroughly searched by the authorities and if any scrolls or books were found, they would immediately be taken to the library to be copied and the ships had to wait till then. Then the copies would be returned to the ships, not the originals. The original would be kept by the Alexandria library. That was the convention followed. And whatever they kept in the library uh, from the ships, they would label them as books from the ships. Now, famous uh, Greek thinkers such as Euclid, Archimedes, Erato, uh, Herophilus, Erasistratus, uh, Hipparchus, Adesia, Pappus, Theon, Hypatia and Arist Aristarchus of Samos, they all are said to have used the resources of the Alexandria library. And uh, when Alexander uh, tried to invade India and was forced to turn back, that period also was a period of great contact between the Indians and the Greeks. There was a lot of, um, you know, exchange of uh, knowledge, a lot of Indian knowledge going to the Greeks. So that was about India's knowledge transfer to Greece. We now come to the Arab world. Uh, Al-Biruni says, Al-Biruni was a well-known historian, uh, Arab historian. He says that the first acquaintance of Arabs with scientific astronomy and Hindu numerals came through the works of Brahmagupta in the 7th century CE, which were translated into Arabic by Al-Fazari. The Indian scholars were frequently invited to Baghdad. So, from the 8th to the 13th century, the Baghdad House of Wisdom was established by Harun al-Rashid, which preserved the works that were acquired from India. So, the, it, the uh, House of Wisdom was like the Alexandria Library, but later it was destroyed by the Mongols. The works of the early Muslim intellectuals such as Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, Al-Fargani, Al-Tabari and Al-Khwarizmi they played a paramount role in transferring Indic knowledge of mathematics, medicine, astronomy, philosophy, chemistry, even music to the Islamic world. The fifth Abbasid the Caliph or Khalifa, 
Harun al-Rashid had an Indian physician called Manka A. Hindi in his uh, court. And this person translated the Sushruta Samhita to Persian in 766 common era. So that must have caused a sensation because this, this is the starting point for a lot of Indian medical knowledge to be transferred to the Arab world and later it went to Europe. So Manka actually uh, treated the, the Caliph who had been sick for a long period and that is how the Arab world realized that there was a great value in translating the Indian medical texts. Now, there is a very well-known figure in the ancient world called Ibn Sina or Avicenna uh, from the 10th century. So he was famous for his works on medicine, philosophy, astronomy and other subjects. He was a polymath. But Avicenna seems to have drunk deep from the knowledge of India. He wrote an encyclopedia on medicine in which he named Charaka and he referred to Ayurvedic medicines like uh, Tripala and various other herbs. He also referred to the Ayurvedic Tridosha concept which later became very popular in the uh, Muslim world and, the, uh, and in the European world as well. So the discipline of mathematics also was um, called Hindisa in Arabic which meant it came from India, pertaining to India. Now we come to the route by which Indian knowledge went to Europe. Until the 11th century, the Christian world in Europe was quite uninterested in the, um, uh, in the discoveries that were being made by its Islamic neighbors. So they had not yet developed any interest in it. But soon enough, the, uh, the translation fever gripped Europe as well. So with the Christian conquest of the Muslim cities like Toledo and Zaragoza, in Spain, that is when the translation uh, started. So in the 12th and um, 13th centuries, there was a Toledo school of translators in Spain, which produced um, a prolific output. They employed many scholars to translate the major Arabic works into Latin. So uh, these translators worked day and night and produced a huge output and they helped to transfer a substantial amount of ancient Indian knowledge to Europe. Uh, the well-known renaissance of Europe, you know, from the from 1400 to 1600 was propelled by the translated works of Arabic scholars, which as I told you had been uh, translated from Indian works. This was acknowledged by the Arabic scholars themselves without any shame, without any embarrassment. So these kind of knowledge transfers continued with even greater in intensity during the colonial period. From the 14th century onwards, when there was uh, no longer any middlemen, there were no Arab intellectuals who were playing the role of middlemen. So the colonizers found a way to India and uh, that is how it became a direct uh, connection with India. The contents of hundreds of Indian books, they directly made their way to uh, monographs and books of Europe. It was as if a flood of European of Indic thought had been um, unleashed into Europe. So the Portuguese, the Dutch, French and British, all of them collected large numbers of manuscripts. You will find more details of this in my new book. We must also look at the global impact of Sanskrit grammar. Professor Subhash Kak has rightly pointed out that Panini's grammar remains one of the greatest achievements of human intellect. It describes the grammar of the Sanskrit language by a system of 4,000 algebraic rules, a feat that has not been equaled by any other language until this day. You will realize that if you study Ashtadhyayi. 
you will be spellbound. Only after the Western world understood Panini's work did language begin to be explored in a scientific manner. And according to Bloomfield, scholars learned to describe a language in terms of its own structure. So today, the you know the high-level computer languages that we use, um, they owe a debt to Sanskrit grammar because it was very difficult to use low-level languages like machine code and assembly. Computer scientists had to construct artificial languages capable of creating high-level logic for programming. Now we come to the saddest part of our history, the destruction of Indian universities by the Islamic invaders, which is often brushed under the carpet. Mindless violence was unleashed on the foremost universities of the time, Nalanda, Vikramshila, Odantapuri, scores of others. This picture that you are seeing is from Hutchinson's book, Story of Nations, and it shows Bakhtiar Khilji on his horse, in a uh, in a university which he has just destroyed and you can see dead bodies of scholars all around imagine professors and students just lying dead all around someone has brought a manuscript to show him and he's unable to make any sense of it it is a heart-wrenching picture this scene was described by minhaj a siraj the principal historian of the delhi sultans in tabakat in nasiri and he said thousands of brahmins with shaven heads were slaughtered. Later, Bakhtiar Kilji met his end in um, Assam. He was killed. But of course, the damage that he did could not be reversed. In subsequent years, as Muslim rule spread and consolidated in different parts of India, many more universities were destroyed like Jagaddala, Somapura, Vallabhi, Kashmir and others. As the news spread, scholars abandoned their colleges even before the Muslim invaders appeared. In Banaras, when several hundreds of temples were destroyed by Qutbuddin Aibak uh, in the 12th century, many learned Brahmins who taught there, they just had to flee to southern India along with their families, carrying whatever manuscripts they could. Some of the scholars who escaped from Vikramshila, such as Sakya Bhadra and Vibhuti Chandra, made their way to Tibet, Tibet had already become a center of higher learning because India was supplying scholars to them. So these people who uh, wanted to escape the marauders, these uh, scholars, they fled to Tibet. And, um, and that is how, you know, the records maintained by the Buddhist monks at Tibet, they give accounts of the destruction of the Indian universities. Al-Biruni, the 11th century chronicler who uh, recorded how uh, Mahmud Ghaznavi's invasions had caused Hindus to scatter like atoms of dust. He also said that Hindu sciences had receded to areas where our hands have not reached them like Kashmir, Varanasi and South India. So you can see the widespread mayhem and destruction caused at this time. In the succeeding centuries, even those areas came under the Islamic rule, the ones which, had, which were spared in the earlier times. During the Sultanate period, there was a systematic stamping out of Hindu learning and accompanying destruction of manuscripts all over northern and central India. For example, when Firoz Shah Tughlaq, uh, uh, in the 14th century, he defeated the Hindus of Kohana. He ordered that their scriptures be seized and burned. 
That was a very standard thing to do. Despite attempts by scholars to regroup in distant locations and even to rebuild some of the destroyed universities, the old glory of Indic educational systems could not be restored, obviously. Imagine if you are destroying a whole university, killing the scholars, how can the same grandeur come back? As various Muslim dynasties got entrenched within India, education with the aim of is, uh, imparting Islamic te teachings became the norm. So newly established maktabs and madrasas attached to mosques began uh, to impart training in Islamic traditions. So the absence of science education that was noted by the British in a later era can be linked to the Muslim invasions of India. The Sanskrit works of scientists and mathematicians of earlier periods began to be forgotten in their very land of origin. Meanwhile, the Arabic and Latin translations which were going on with great fervor, they became the basis of science, math and technology in Europe. During the reign of uh, the Mughal Emperor Akbar in the 16th century, Sanskrit received some amount of royal patronage since Akbar was interested in, for, uh, having ha in harmonizing the relationships between his Muslim and Hindu subjects. So there was some uh, reprieve. The first Sanskrit uh, Persian dictionary was compiled during Akbar's reign. Many works were produced in Sanskrit, Hindi and regional languages such as Bengali and Marathi. It was the age of Tulsi Das and Rahim. After Akbar, um, Akbar's reign, during the, the reign of Jahangir and Shah Jahan, at a superficial level, there was some encouragement of literature in Sanskrit and regional languages. It was at a superficial level. There was always a substratum of violent oppression of Hindus. For example, in 1633, Shah Jahan came to know about an attempt by the Hindus in Banaras to rebuild the temples which were destroyed earlier by Muslims. And uh, he ordered that all the half-built temples must be demolished right away. So about 76 temples were then demolished in Banaras, which we know was a very important center, uh, a hub of education. So let us not be, uh, you know, told that, you know, the, that during the reign of Akbar, Shah Jahan, Aurangzeb, uh, uh, Jahangir, everything was good for the Hindus. No. Aurangzeb, the son of Shah Jahan, took the oppression of Hindus to an entirely new level. He was an Islamic fanatic and he persecuted Hindus. He built um, new maktabs and madrasas on the ruins of the demolished temples. There is um, uh, a story where on hearing that the Brahmins at uh, Thatta, Multan, Sindh and especially Varanasi, when he came to know that they were attracting Muslims to their discourses, he ordered all their temples and schools to be demolished. He brutally killed his elder brother Darashiko, the rightful heir to the throne, because he took a great deal of interest in translating Sanskrit works to Persian. He used to sit a lot with traditional scholars to understand what is in the Sanskrit text. So he was destroyed. I must also mention the Islamic fanatic Sikandar Shah Miri of Kashmir in the 14th century, who set out to eliminate not just the Hindu population, but also their Sanskrit books. This was the period when a large number of people got converted to Islam in the Kashmir Valley. So if you are wondering how we survived as Hindus until today, then you must know that 
rich businessmen hindu rajas and local communities kept the flame of learning alight for the hindus hindu uh, saints often risked their lives to preserve the sacred manuscripts the jain community also played a significant role in preserving ancient knowledge in the face of great danger they are the unsung heroes of today unsung heroes of ancient times i mean there is a poignant story of vedanta desika how he risked his life to preserve the manuscript written by his guru when the army of ulluk khan attacked the srirangam temple in southern india that story is really poignant the bulk of indic manuscripts survived in the homes of individual brahmanas or in the mathas or or in the saraswati bhandaras the libraries were called saraswati bhandaras which were maintained by hindu rulers and they those of them that were located outside the zones of strong islamic pressure they survived now i come to the period of british imperialism it is widely known that the colonizers wanted the land and the wealth of india but what is lesser known is that india's intellectual wealth was also a target the battle between the europeans who started to uh, come to india via the sea route from the 15th century onwards continued for centuries the british east india company emerged victorious after pushing out the portuguese the french and the dutch to the extreme periphery and then the british began to spread their tentacles within india so let's look at the agenda of uh, british education at first the british did not bother themselves with education of the natives and they focused on playing politics with different rulers and enriching themselves they looted to the extent that they could trade and loot was all that mattered then over time they realized that their dominion in india could not last long unless education especially western was diffused among the inhabitants of the land so they understood that at first the british set up a mohammedan and a sanskrit college in um, calcutta and uh, banaras in the 18th century because they wanted a regular supply of qualified hindu and mohammedan law officers for judicial administration how would they else how else would they administer the people so they needed officers the british did not have any noble motives of education of the masses when they set up institutes of learning in india we should be very clear about that remember these are the same people who imposed serious punishment on black slaves in america if they ever found them assembling for the purpose of education so in the case of india they realized it is not possible to control this mass of people unless their existing education system was dismantled they realized the importance of imposing the english language there was of course a certain convenience associated with having english speaking natives but there was no way that a british officer wanted to struggle with learning uh, uh, tamil and kannada and all these things so there was actually a debate that went on for 15 years between the orientalists and the anglicists on whether english should become the language of instruction in the government funded schools the orientalists argued that government funds should be used to support colleges for the teaching of arabic and sanskrit so and that the money should be used to pay stipends to the students in these colleges and to translate the arabic uh, the works into arabic and 
um, Sanskrit. So they wanted the English works to be translated into Arabic and Sanskrit. The Anglicists, on the other hand, wanted that the government funds should be spent on teaching English. No, there should be no translation. Just teach the students English and then directly teach the English uh, uh, textbooks to these people, these students with no stipends and no translations. But the Orientalists and Anglicists had one thing in common. Their belief in the innate inferiority of the Indian culture. So they both wished to educate the elites. Uh, the elites of India who would then become pliable subjects and then that's how they would um, uh, improve the minds of the natives of India. So the Anglicists and the Orientalists, they only differed on how to improve the minds of Indians, how to correct their beliefs and how to make them useful as subjects of the British Empire. Charles Trevelyan, the brother-in-law of Macaulay, was an Anglicist who argued that if the sepoys in the army studied Arabic or Sanskrit, then they would not feel any loyalty towards, um, uh, they would not feel loyalty towards their British bosses. Eventually, Macaulay came out with the infamous memo or the minute in which he said that we must aim at creating a class of persons, Indian in blood and color, but English in tastes, in opinions, in morals and in intellect. This is how the Indian Education Act was passed in, 19, uh, in 1835 and that led to the government funds being reallocated towards a Western curriculum with English as the language of instruction. Many Indians were themselves Anglicists who strongly believed that there would be no advancement without studying in English or teaching in English. It is ironic that when India was embroiled in the education debate, England was itself languishing in illiteracy. A minuscule fraction of children in England went to school and the only book that most literate people had read was the Bible. The first elementary school in England came up as late as 1850. Teachers were not respected and there was absolutely no concept of Acharya Devobhava. Let us now look at the enormous contribution of Dharampal. I never learned about him in school and I think even today only a few people recognize the value of his research. He wrote a book called The Beautiful Tree which examines the pre-colonial education system in India. He was a Gandhian and he spent a few years in London, during which time he explored the archival material in various libraries across the British Isles. He discovered documents related to a series of surveys commissioned by the British government in the 19th century to assess the level of indigenous education in India. So he copied all those, uh, the, the documents, the, uh, the text in the documents and made it available to the people of India. His pioneering research brought up startling data that created a stir in academic circles at the time. Dharampal discovered Thomas Munro's statement that almost every village in India had a patshala, a school. There were uh, about 100,000 village schools reported in Bengal and Bihar alone. This was in the 1830s. So reading, writing, arithmetic, epics and more were being taught in these patshalas. William Adams, one of the surveyors um, who was um, noted by Dharampal, 
he said that the education was in a state of decay however he also wrote that he could not recollect studying in his village school anything uh, he was from scotland so he said he didn't recollect studying anything that had more direct bearing upon daily life than what was being taught in the humbler village schools of bengal from different parts of india came reports of dedicated teachers superior methods of teaching and high school um, uh, high attendance in school so all this was documented in the surveys conducted by the british which dharampal discovered but what simply challenged every stereotype was that in a large uh, number of schools shudras were in majority while the brahmanas and the vaishyas were in minority so in tamil speaking areas the shudras range from 70% in uh, places like salem and tinnel uh, tinnevelli to over 84% in south arcot in malayalam speaking malabar brahmin students constituted only 20% of schools while shudras were 54% and muslims were 27% the same trend was reported in um, bellari kannada speaking bellari and odia uh, speaking ganja only in telugu speaking districts did the dwija caste form the majority of students now some of the collectors who uh, uh, gave data to the survey they spoke about poor brahmanas who taught children with no expectation of comp- compensation they just taught because it was a duty to teach so this this has been mentioned basically the surveys revealed that even after all the damage done to the universities during the muslim rule the primary schooling in india was still functioning it was still intact when the british took over it was in decay but it was functioning there are many examples of innovation in the pre colonial period that actually caught the attention of christian missionaries so the christian missionaries in their reports have spoken about what they observed in the village schools so for example there was reverend robertson who noticed a very innovative way of conducting examinations in bordhoman in bengal he found that once a month the students of higher classes uh, from different schools they were all uh, herded together and they brought to one place um the top student of one school asked a question to the top student of another school and if he could not answer then it was passed down to the second student and if he could not answer it was passed down to the third student and so on so in this manner the children could put questions to their counterparts in other schools robertson has recorded that all the children enjoyed this examination so much that it did not even feel like an examination he also noticed that the brahman children and the shudra children they were sitting together and sometimes the brahman children were scoring lesser than the shudra children another record we have is from reverend andrew bell a christian missionary who was traveling in madras presidency he was very impressed to find that in the rural schools they would put a heap of sand outside the schools and on that sand the children would trace the alphabets and that is how they learned the alphabets so he was astonished that even without blackboards and chalks the children were becoming literate at such a low cost in contrast the british were complaining that there were no blackboards and chalk which was keeping their uh, country illiterate also mr bell saw that the older children uh, in the madras schools were teaching the younger children when the teacher was not around there was no noise they were quietly learning from each other 
So he liked the system so much that he called it the Madras method and he introduced it in British schools. So it was very successful. Um, after Dr. Bell published his paper on the Madras method, he was in great demand to introduce this to other schools. So by 1821, 300,000 children were reportedly being educated under Dr. Bell's principles, which included training the older kids to become mentors to the younger kids. Uh, and how uh, to monitor the, uh, the learning of the younger students. So his ideas were adopted in Europe, West Indies and even in Bogota, Colombia. This is a picture of Madras College established by Dr. Bell, which stands even today in St. Andrews, Scotland. So if you happen to go to Scotland, you might be interested in looking up this school. As the British rule progressed in India, villages got increasingly impoverished. Heavy taxation induced poverty and the diversion of agricultural produce caused famines. People were reduced to poverty. For example, when the British with the Nawab of Arcot attacked Tanjavur in 1771 and um, they imposed crushing taxes, mass poverty was created overnight. A prosperous region like Tanjavur, which once exported muslin and chins to Europe it, and it possessed uh, rich fertile soil, it was pushed to ruin. No trace remained of its earlier abundance. Everything that India produced, textiles, steel, food grains, gold, silver, minerals, all these were now being produced for the benefit of Britain. There was no food for teachers and students in the Patshalas. The entire British administrative apparatus was geared towards fleecing the citizens. The designations of the officers like district collectors, they indicated that the only aim of the government was to collect taxes. Even temples were not spared and they were forced to part with most of the donations they received. Obviously, they fell into disrepair, which is something that is still happening in India because of the continuation of colonial policies. So there was no way that the earlier uh, grandeur of the education system could be maintained. Poverty spread like an epidemic. With every subject being taught in English, the mother tongues were relegated to second languages. Illiteracy and low self-confidence began to be associated with, a, with an absence of English proficiency. So if you didn't know English, then you were illiterate. That is, that is the period when it all started. M.K. Gandhi said in 1931 that the British had left India more illiterate than it was a hundred years ago. That was a very profound statement. Today also India has very high illiteracy uh, which, which, which we are trying to overcome but this has come down from those times when the British destroyed the, uh, the, the primary education system. By the end of the 19th century, most of India's indigenous um, industries had been wiped out and prosperous artisans had turned into paupers. The balance between industry and agriculture was also destroyed because many people were now forced to migrate to rural areas in order to support themselves by growing uh, crops by tilling land. Suddenly, there was a spike in the numbers of landless agricultural laborers, which we still see today. Under such conditions, education was hardly going to be a priority. Brahmin Pandits were forced into poverty without the support of society. Before the British disrupted the equilibrium of society, 
the Brahmins were engaged in teaching, performing rituals in temples and advising kings in matters of administration and various other intellectual or uh, religious roles. The Brahmins were largely respected in society for their uh, dedication to learning and for serving as a repository of Vedic knowledge and traditions. The society was supporting them. But all this changed after the British began to interfere. After the British established the Indian civil services in 1858 to govern India, because now they needed, needed the help of civil servants, a time came when they realized it was impossible to administer the provinces without recruiting Indians. There were not enough British officers to do the job. So that is how the Brahmins were selected in, in the examinations because um, uh, they had higher literacy and they, had, they were uh, enabled in the English language. So a large number of Brahmins got selected. So suddenly a knowledge of English had become uh, very essential for employment in the government services, uh, also in teaching and in politics. So the Telugu and the Tamil Brahmins had a natural advantage over the, over the non-Brahmins and that is how the government jobs began to be dominated by them. Suddenly now the Brahmins were put in the role of tax collectors. That is how the resentment started. A new conflict was created between Brahmins and non-Brahmins. As the Brahmanas became indispensable in government bureaucracy, the, the British bosses also began to feel uneasy and they began to fear the educated Brahmin as a threat to their supremacy in India. This is on record. In 1879, the collector of Tanjore wrote about the acute Brahman intellect and how it was a misfortune that the British men, British made such men their masters to a great extent. So, by using the notorious divide and rule strategy, the British succeeded in driving a wedge between the Brahmanas and the non-Brahmanas, especially with their spurious Aryan invasion theory. They also conducted um, censuses in 1872 and 1881 in which the various surnames of India were put into caste categories. This was for the first time. This was never done before. So before the census, the social structure was quite fluid. There was mobility among the various jatis. It was not organized so strictly. But the British succeeded in creating rigid caste identities. It set the scene for the Dravidian movement in southern India, which disrupted society. In fact, there are some notable British people who called out the damage done to India's educational heritage. For example, there was A.D. Campbell. He was the district collector of Bellary in Karnataka. He was so moved by the plight of the people he administered that in 1823, he wrote that the degeneration of education was attributable to the transfer of capital of the country from the native government to the Europeans, restricting it by law from employing it even temporarily in, in India and daily draining it from the land. So he said that. Then there was another Britisher called Ludlow and he wrote, in every Hindu village which has retained its old form, I am assured that the children generally are able to read, write and cipher. But where we have swept away the village system, as in Bengal, there the village school has also disappeared. Then there is the evidence presented by G.W. Leitner, who spent 15 years in India, mainly in Punjab, and he founded a number of schools. So he argued that in uh, Punjab, the education had been crippled, checked and is nearly destroyed and opportunities for its healthy revival and development are either neglected or perverted. 
He said that respect for learning had always been the redeeming feature of the East and Punjab was no different from its attachment. Um, uh, Punjab was just like that in terms of attachment to education. So he mentions the elaborate manner in which manuscripts over thousand years old were being preserved by the common people of Punjab. He mentions that. And Leitner also recounted his experience of not finding a single villager who did not take pride in devoting a portion of his produce to a respected teacher. He said government must involve the priestly classes in reviving the classical languages of India while at the same time bringing European science and education within the reach of the masses by developing the vernaculars of India and translating the works of scientific interest into those vernaculars. He said that. Even after we got independence from the British, the government of the day continued the same policies that the colonizers had set up. That is the tragedy of India. So the question arises, what can we do now? First and foremost, I'm, I say that we must become grateful inheritors of our own educational heritage. There is so much to be grateful to the gurus of ancient India. Shame on us if we allow their contributions to be erased and their works to be forgotten. Secondly, let us do what we can to revive the best aspects of our ancient educational system. Let us revive the culture of um, logical reasoning, debating. Let us explore our Shastras, our Kavya, our Itihasa and see how to make them relevant for today. Of course, not all of them can be, may be relevant for today's age, but let us explore. And certainly, we must introduce courses on the great books of India like Ramayana, Mahabharata, Bhagavad Gita, the principal Upanishads, the Yoga Vasishta, the Natya Shastra, selected Sanskrit plays, all of these which will acquaint students with the rich hues of the Indian civilization. Thirdly, we must decolonize ourselves and use our own Indic lenses. There is a new scholarship of decoloniality that is gaining momentum today. It started from Latin America. So you will find many studies uh, related to decoloniality in the Spanish and the Latin American context. African studies have also been done. They are not behind. But for some reason, India has not done much in decoloniality. It ought to have taken the lead. Especially because Indians as knowledge producers have greatly suffered from the Eurocentric approach that was taken by the historians, the sociologists, the anthropologists and the others. Why have we not taken the lead? There is a famous statement by Dr. S. N. Balagangadhara in which he says, We know the West as the West looks at itself. We study the East the way the West looks, studies the East. We do not even know if the world would look different if we looked at it our way. So it's high time we threw away our colonial lenses and we got our own Indic lenses which will help us to be more holistic and dharmic. I am glad the national education policy of 2020 has advocated for um, many path breaking reforms. But as we know the real challenge lies in the, in the implementation. So I hope for the best. I hope that this will be all the challenges will be ironed out and we will implement these reforms. I request you to read my new book, the um, Revisiting the Educational Heritage of India. It is now available in on Amazon and in stores. Please ask your local libraries and uh, bookstores to order the book. 
if you have any questions please uh, i'm available on email please email me but my main message is let us become worthy descendants of our gurus vande mataram